Hey everyone, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. We're going to go deep into Iowa this week. Before we do that, though, we're obviously still uh, living in a political world dominated by impeachment. What's interesting to me is the more serious this becomes, and, and obviously we're, we're getting witness after witness that suggests that high crimes and misdemeanors were likely committed, but it seems like the Republican Party is just digging in further and further. So it almost seems like the evidence is immaterial. I think it, it's very important, though, because I think one of the challenges right now, you see some polling out there, particularly in the battleground states, and I think it's, it's this is a really another good example of the presidential election is not a national election. <laughs> if we care about who's going to be the next president, all that matters is, you know, the five, six, seven states that will truly be competitive. And for the first time this week, we're starting to see deeper uh, polling in these states about how people view impeachment. And, you know, the numbers are different there than they are nationally. There's less overall support both for the inquiry and for impeachment. And I think what's really important right now is I think in, in many respects this has been conflated. But I think we need to do all we can to educate voters, if you're a progressive, that that this is in bounds, that, you know, ultimately whether Trump is impeached or not or convicted or whatever you may think about that as a citizen, this is in bounds. And so I think that obviously I, I think the House of Representatives on the Democratic side are doing a very good job of of finding witnesses. But I, th I think this is going to be like a real effort to make sure that, that voters see this in bounds. Because if they see it's out of bounds, this close to a general election, I do think that it's going to make, you know, the election more challenging. You know, I think in the presidential campaign, obviously the candidates are on our side continue to raise a lot of money, campaign. But, but I think the campaign really starts a new phase uh, with the big Iowa dinner. Used to be called the Jefferson-Jackson Day dinner. Now it's the Liberty and, and Justice dinner. Historically, it's been on Saturday. Uh, it's on Friday. I, I don't know why that is. I don't think that's optimal because people come in from all over the state. It can be a three and a half or four hour drive. So folks are going to have to take off work harder for kids. But be that as it may, this dinner has always been an enormously important event. This is the starting gun. You're three months away from the Iowa caucuses. You're going to have uh, tens of thousands of people in Iowa either directly or indirectly consuming the speech, which is a big percentage of the ultimate caucus electorate. The national political media is going to interpret this. And, and historically, whether it's John Kerry or Barack Obama or Al Gore, this has been a really important moment to seize momentum, to show the strength of your organization. Can you get enough people there? Uh, do they have the right kind of energy? Are they from all over the state? I mean, I was a you know big state. It can take three and a half, four hours for people to drive uh, to Des Moines for this dinner. So that takes commitment. And then can the candidates bring it? And I think what a lot of people question is, well, listen, they're debating each other. They're giving speeches. They're giving interviews. What makes this so special? Well, it's a little bit different. You're in the almost like you're in a, a boxing ring. You're in the middle of a big arena surrounded by people. There's no podium. There's no teleprompters. There's no notes allowed. And you're giving speeches back to back. And, you know, can you in, you know, eight to 10 minutes capture the crowd, motivate the crowd, not say something completely new, but maybe refresh it in a way that really excites people? Because what, what folks at that dinner and all the people in Iowa and around the country who are going to be consuming it are looking for is somebody who can beat Trump and somebody who can be a great president. And so this is an opportunity, I think, really to show that. And so I'd go so far as to say if, if you underperform 
But it's going to be difficult to recover from that. You, you may be able to, particularly if you're one of the front runners, but it's going to be harder. If you're doing really well right now and you win the night, you're really going to propel yourself. Uh, and the question then is, can you maximize the momentum coming out of this? And if you're somebody who's not given much of a shot, but you have a spectacular night, both in terms of your organization and your delivery and your speech, um, you know, that can really give you a new look and some new oxygen to your race. So, so I think that really between this is the big moment, as I see it, between now and really the holidays, is this event and all the work coming out of it. And then, you know, we enter a new phase right after the first of the year when you're really in a sprint to Iowa and the rest of the early states. So I know this race has been covered so intensively for so long. The candidates are working hard and tired. The staff are hard and tired. But, um, you know, this is starting to get real. And I know Barack Obama would probably not be president if he hadn't had a great JJ dinner in Iowa. Uh, it really is what propelled us. The team there had built a great organization, and he was starting to hit his stride a little bit. But that really separated us from the rest of the field and, and enabled us to build a winning campaign there. So I would encourage all of you to view it or, or view Clip Sunday, because if you care about this nomination fight, uh, this dinner is incredibly important. And it's also a way for all of us to assess these candidates. I'll, as someone who's not even sure who I'm going to vote for yet, uh, this will be an important night for me uh, to really see who I think has the goods we need both to beat Trump but to do an excellent job as president. So we're going to go deep into Iowa. We're going to start with Paul Tooze, a legendary Democratic organizer, has, has led campaigns across the country for various offices. I want to talk to him at Iowa because he was Barack Obama's state director, led our effort there in 2007 and 2008, had worked for Al Gore in Iowa as well, has spent a lot of time in the Midwest. So I really want to go deep with Paul on this dinner why it's important, how you prepare for it, some of the history around it, and also just get his sense of where the campaign stands now and where it may head, and really also ask him about questions of, of how much fluidity is there still in the Iowa caucus electorate. I, historically, there tends to be a great amount, and so I'm eager to hear his view of the big field this time, if that's still the case. So I think you're going to learn a lot from Paul Tews. He did one of the best jobs I've ever seen in politics, building and organizing our Iowa campaign team, um, the culture he built, the insistence on excellence that he built was really one of a kind. And so Iowa still remains an incredibly important gateway to the nomination. And I think you're all going to benefit a great deal from Paul's both experience and insights about the race we're going through today. Paul Tews, thank you so much for being on the pod. Yeah, my pleasure. Looking forward to it. Well, I'm going to talk all things Iowa, but I want to start with what used to be called the Iowa JJ Dinner. Now it's been renamed the Liberty and Justice Celebration. I, I hope they rethink that, maybe call it the Carter Obama Dinner. But you were leading our effort for Barack Obama in, in, in 2007 and 2008. You were in Iowa for Al Gore. So you've seen both up close and know historically how important this dinner is. Can you tell folk, because folks probably say, hey, there's a gazillion party dinners, they all give speeches, you know, what's the big deal with this one? Why is this one so important and why should people pay attention to it? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think there's a number of things that I, you know, I'll, I'll say about it just in, in recollection. You know, number one, I think it's kind of, you know, it's the first big event after Labor Day of the off year. Um, I think... You know, I think the national press, the local press, the activists in Iowa kind of give everybody time. You know, so they give them time to 
get their sea legs, give them time to get built, get them time to get their message honed, you know, give them time to learn from mistakes. And this is the moment of, you know, where all the candidates are coming together where, okay, now, you know, we're looking, the press is looking, the activists are looking at who's ready for prime time. You know, it's a prime time event and you've had your training ground, so to speak, uh, and this is a prime time event and, you know, uh, we're now three months away from the Iowa caucus. Back in 08, I think it was, you know, a month and a half away from the Iowa caucus or two months away from the Iowa caucus. So it's just, it's a big deal because of the moment we're in, uh, the moment on the calendar, uh, what people are going to take away from it. Number two, it's not, it is a moment, but, you know, I always say, you know, people look back at, was that the moment that you thought you could win the Iowa caucus for Obama? You know, it's a yes and no, because I think it's also, you're only good there because of what you had built the previous six or eight months. You know, we brought in people from all over Iowa that day who were energized and excited and, you know, fed off each other and fed off of him and, uh, you know, just a very powerful moment, both organizationally and message-wise for him and, and as people were watching. But you know, that's not created in the moment. That's created over time. So it's kind of a way as well for other activists to see what you've built, for the press to see what you've built. You know, are you a campaign that can harness energy and and deliver energy? And that's very visible there. You know, so I think for those two reasons, it's a, it's a very important event. Right. So there's, I mean, I think there's two major elements. So one is the candidate performance on the stage. I want to talk about that next. Yeah. And then there's the organization element. And I remember talking to you a lot in the lead up to the JJ dinner in in 07. That was so important to us. And if I recall, I mean, you and your senior team, yes, you obviously wanted to put a good show on that day. But what was more important for you was it was a great test of the organization to see if the organization could deliver. Talk a little bit about that. And, yeah. and you know, I think we, you know, passed with, with flying colors that day. But so folks understand this isn't just about the raw number of people waving what signs. Like there's real organizing that goes into this that is actually somewhat related to whether, you're, you know, you can put together your operation on caucus day. Yeah, no, and I, I think there's a little bit of myth like it's a show in the sense of, you know, I, people would say, like, it's a show of organizational force. And I don't necessarily, I think that's important, but I think the more important thing that is happening, you know, back to the building is, you know, I firmly believe that great organizing should not be a lonely enterprise. That, and I think we're, you know, I think sometimes the danger of all this offline activity is that you're putting people in their, on their kitchen table and they're alone. And I think people want to organize with other people. Uh, they want to know that what they're doing to make change, other people are doing. And, you know, there's a team spirit in it. It's not an alone spirit. So one of the great things I think about, the you know, the JJ for us was you brought people in from Sioux City from to Fort Madison to um, Dubuque to Council Bluffs and everywhere in between across the state into one venue and they saw each other and they realized we're not alone and two they saw the candidate perform at a high level uh, and they saw the organization perform at a high level that they were a part of and that gave them confidence 
You know, so they left there feeling, you know, to borrow a term, fired up and ready to go. Um, and that's the value of it. The value is, of it is the confidence I think you breed internally. It was so interesting, if I recall back to that, because, you know, we had, I think, the largest crowd, the most energy. Yeah. Again, I think what you found most interesting is how we did that, you know, yeah. and, and, and folks out even three and a half, four hours away were organizing. But if I recall, there was two criticisms. One, people just assumed we brought a bunch of people in from Chicago. I think the only yeah. person from Chicago that day was Barack Obama. And then I, I think, don't you remember, I think it was Mark Penn from the Clinton campaign who said, oh, look at all these young kids here. You know, I yeah. think he actually used the term, you know, Facebook, Facebook doesn't vote. Yeah. So it was interesting. I mean, did that? Um, how did you interpret some of those criticisms? You know, knowing you, you probably laughed and said, "We'll show you on caucus day." But did that have any impact on you or the team? I don't think so. You know, I, I you know, um, unlike football, I don't, I don't think there's a lot of locker room talk. You know, like post stuff up on the locker room at the other side. I would say I always say about the Iowa caucus. You know, you're not competing against other candidates. Fundamentally, you're not. You know, it's a small universe. There's always more people to get. You're kind of competing against the clock and competing uh, really internally. Can we grow our list and be bigger and stronger? So, you know, I, I don't think any of us sat around afterwards and said, boy, we're going to show them. It's It was more we felt confident in what we had done. We knew what we had done. Whether they wanted to believe in what we had done, we didn't really care, I don't think, at the moment. So, no, I would say it didn't really, it wasn't like, wow, we're going to show them, you know. So, let's talk about the candidates. So, all these candidates this year, same was true for us in 2007 and 8, true for John Kerry, true for Al Gore, spending a lot of time in Iowa. So, you're giving a lot of speeches, town halls. These candidates are debating each other. These candidates actually in Iowa at county party dinners have spoken on the same night after each other. So what makes this different? It almost seems like it's an, an event of uh, almost like gladiators. Um, you know, there's a lot of drama. Talk about what makes this different and, and I guess what makes it harder to really excel and, you know, the benefit when you do. Yeah. I, you know, I think what makes it different is this, this is the big stage. You know, I think that's just been a creation over time from, you know, my time with Al Gore, if you remember then it was – you know, kind of the stay and fight. It was, and I think there was a, I remember, I'll never forget the article that came out after Newsweek, after the Iowa JJ at the time, uh, was The Empire Strikes Back, I think was the headline. <laughs> this was when Gore was taken on. Because Bill Bradley was yes. on the move, right? Yeah, yeah, Bill Bradley was on the move, and here's Al Gore said, you know, I didn't walk away, I stayed and fight. And, you know, it, it was, you know, I think from that moment on, I and I wasn't there you know, prior, it always became kind of the big event where after the summer, you know, candidates were kind of winnowed out, especially this year. And now maybe you have four to six heavyweights still standing. And the press from top to bottom from is going to be judging this. Opinion makers are going to be judging this. The candidate, uh, you know, they're going to be judging the candidate, the campaign, the organization. But, you know, it all starts with the candidate. It just kind of became that. So it it not only reverberates around Iowa, but it reverberates around the country. You know, and that's a testament to, you know, I think you, having done Iowa before, you know, I think we started planning the JJ, both organizationally and, you know, you guys message-wise, months in advance. Like, we knew the big deal that this was. Well, I think it's fair to say we needed to do well, right? It's not like we were... 
waltzing our way to the nomination. <laughs> so the setting itself, so I do think one of the things that make it unique is I assume they'll do it the same as they've done in prior cycles. You know, the candidates are in the round, so they're kind of surrounded by everybody. Yeah. No notes, no podium, it's dark. There's a yeah. time limit. So it it is, what's interesting is, I mean, you you saw Barack Obama day in and day out in 07, and if I recall, there was a period of time where he was performing so poorly, you're like, it's probably not a good idea to send him back <laughs> until he really gets his act together in terms of his stump. So how, what did it mean to you that night to see Really, that was probably the first time people saw the Obama from the Boston Convention in Iowa. But the degree of difficulty there, I think, for the candidates is high because it is, you talked about the pressure and all the scrutiny from the press, but it is a different event in this political decathlon they're all running. I mean, it's like, I, you know, I recall, I mean, he hit a home run. I mean, it was a grand slam. I mean, it was a great speech. You know, you could tell it was from the heart. This is the speech that he's he's wanted to give since he ran. And, you know, a, a political campaign in Iowa, you know, doesn't always invite that ability to make that speech. I mean, you know, you're going from coffee shops to town halls, and, you know, it's rare when you have the opportunity to deliver that big speech, like you, as you put it, you know, through, you know, kind of like the 04 convention. So he had, you know, I re- recall, you know, mostly through you and 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 David Axrod and others, you know, John Favreau, and you know, he had been working on this speech for weeks and rehearsing it and you know, fine tuning it, and you know, you got the impression that this is what he wanted to say to the country. This is what he wanted to say to Iowa, and I also think, you know, this is where the two go together. And I think people watch this. You know, he f- he feeds off organization. And the organization feeds off him. And when the two are in harmony, wow. I mean, it's a magical moment in politics. It's a magical, it was a magical night, as you recall. And, um, you know, the rest is history. But a lot of preparation went into it, both from, you know, from him to everybody. Right. So it's not like Barack Obama in that speech Everything he said was completely new, but it was a new package, right? It was a new articulation of his case. How important it is for the, particularly the leading candidates, to bring something a little bit new? I think important, but I also think, you know, I, I always tell people, message matters, right? You know, I don't like to be overly critical of other campaigns, but I remember that night. You know, that was kind of a real enunciation of hope and change, right? And what he what he meant by that. Probably change and hope in that order, I would say, actually. Um, and here, I remember Hillary's turn up the heat, right? You remember that? And yeah. I just felt like, On okay. On the Republicans, turn up the heat. Yeah, yeah, and I felt like it was so new that it was like her third try at something. And it felt a little clunky, I thought. And, you know, so I think whatever you're going to say that night— needs to be a natural extension of what you've already said. I also think that because it is the the time when, you know, from the New York Times to the Carroll County News in Carroll, Iowa, are going to report on it, that everybody's watching, and you better be crystal clear on a message and a message frame and what you want to say to the country, not just Iowa. And, it, and so it should be consistent. But I agree, it should, you know, you got to have some new elements in there, kind of definition about what your presidency will bring this country, which, where you want to bring this country. I'm less for policy stuff in there because I think it's a big moment, a big speech where people want to be lifted up 
especially the partisans. And he did that. And uh, we'll see what happens this weekend. But, I, you, you know, one of the funny thing about that night, too, that you don't I, – I know you remember this, is like I think the event started at 7 or 8, and we got the last draw. So there were six candidates that gave speeches. I think they each had 10 minutes – or no, 15 minutes, 15 minutes. But in between, they had probably six or seven other speeches from, you know, like the governor – uh, Speaker Pelosi was there at the time. Uh, they had three members of Congress giving speeches. They had, old, you know, Leonard Boswell, the congressman from the Des Moines area at the time, doing an auction. So Obama didn't get on stage till like eleven o'clock at night, and we were running around trying to, you know, I, by this time the concession stand, the the two concession stands in the whole place had run out of food, so we had to go get pizza to keep our people, you know, energized and happy. But we didn't have anybody leave. I mean, people were fired up. He gets on stage, you know, four or five hours after people had sat down in an arena that was, you know, built in the 50s with, you know, hard wooden chairs that uh, stuck through. And uh, uh, I think, you know, I don't know how long it's going to go this weekend, but I am sure it's not going to be short. Yeah, right. It's a great point. So, I mean, I think that speaks to the passion of the organization you built for him. But also, he was a night owl. And that night we benefited from yeah, I think there's yeah, other candidates right. who might have struggled. So I'm sure you'll be tuning in, Paul, eager to hear your reactions. So let's talk just Iowa generally. So, you know, my view is is the the real campaign starts this Friday, both because this event, I think, does uh, have so much import in the race. And, you know, then you're three months before people actually uh, caucus. So talk about this period. And, and I you know, not just I think sort of now through the holidays and then. You know, our our date back in 08 was the very beginning of January. Now it's the beginning of February. But just so, because I think there's a lot of people who see polls and they assume the race is locked in. And, you know, you, you know Iowa caucus history as well as anybody. Talk about both, like, is this the kind of, are we finally the major league season starting? And secondly, just the amount of fluidity you think could still be out there in this election. I think there's a ton of fluidity in the election. I think Democrats are going to be, I, I mean, searching up till caucus night. You know, I don't know what percentage that w- would be. I don't think it's a small percentage. I think they're going to be making their decision up till caucus night. You know, there's an old adage in the Iowa caucuses is, and you know, you and I would always talk about this, is, you know, get hot late. Um, you know, uh, because the electorate, especially in a multi-candidate field of this size, is going to be so fluid that whoever is hot late will have an advantage. Now, so yeah, I agree that this is kind of you're entering, you know, the major league season. However, everything before was spring training and you got to be ready for that. I don't think you can have a great speech and the activists are all fired up about it, but not have built an organization to capture that and figure you're going to you know, walk out of there the front runner or, you know, move up a lot. Like, you have you have to have done the work to lead up to that moment. You have to. Um, and you knew that, you know, back in 07. We knew that. Uh, he knew that. But you are entering the major league season, and, and I just think it's going to be so fluid, and I think the other thing that I think is different between this J.J. and back in 08, we had the J.J. what was like, I think it was like no, early November, if I recall, and then we had Oprah three weeks later. 
four weeks later, three weeks later. And then we had the holidays. And the holidays, we had to still campaign through the holidays, and the activists still expected that because the caucuses were right, you know, a week after Christmas Day. And so the JJ was such a, like, really like maybe the second half kickoff of a football game. You know, you know this, you still got two months after the holidays. So there's going to be a pause in the holidays. So to me, I think what's going to be really telling is you ride this JJ out into the holidays. Do you come back after the holidays still in the same position when there's going to be a, just a natural pause in the political world? Probably a longer pause than there was back in 08. Right. In your history, because I very much agree with that, both as it relates to Iowa, but I think elections generally, you want to be hot at the end. You know, is that something that you can manufacture? Or uh, to your point, you have to have an organization to capitalize the moments when you are hot. But is is a lot of this kind of out of a campaign in candidates' control? I don't know. You know, I, I remember, you know, I think we debated this a lot, you know, back in 07, 08 was... I remember when he came into Iowa back in, you know, the early, you know, February 11th, right? And then thereafter, and, you know, he goes to Ames, Iowa, and Des Moines, and he would draw crowds of, you know, that first, the first time he ever went into a, you know, medium to larger city in Iowa, he was drawn, you know, three to, you know, in Ames that, that first weekend, you know, like 8,000. And that's huge. I mean, huge, huge numbers. Huge numbers for an Iowa caucus, Un, unheard of, and we're still a year away. And I remember, you know, talking to some veterans of the Iowa caucus and you, and you know, there's always there was always this worry that, you know, we were early, and you couldn't keep that momentum up. So the next time you went back to, you know, Des Moines, and you know, that first day was four thousand people. The next time was eight hundred. And, man, we started to, you know, not, I don't think we were, you know, we ever sat and wrung our hands, but so I think over the course of the summer and you started building in more organizing events, you kind of find your groove, you know, you get, you get them to a city and, you know, I remember we'd have Barack Obama, you know, meet with the high school kids before every event in any town, right? We knew the value of that. And then maybe a group of local veterans or a group of local farmers. So you just, you began to develop an organizing formula along with your your candidate's time. And so, yeah, I, I think in a context you can manufacture that, you can control for that, but ultimately it's, you know, it comes down to message and authenticity and is this the person that's right for the moment, um, which, you know, he was at the time and uh, the rest was history. How much do you imagine in those closing days and weeks in January leading into the caucuses will you know, caucus attenders be focused on who is the best candidate to beat Trump? I mean, do you think that that is going to be driving a lot of decisions at the end? Yes, way more than people think. I think, um, I and this is not, you know, I'm not sitting and having focus groups or looking at research or anything. I just think, unlike 07, I, I, I just remember how important it was in 07 and 08 you know, we would face that question, you know, can he win? Um, and even and that though was we were... an open sea race, yeah. Yeah, and you remember this. I mean, we were getting killed in Democratic polls nationally. But, you know, starting in the late summer, early fall, they started pairing general election polls, and he was always like two to three points ahead of Hillary. 
in a general election poll. And so we would, you know, pump those around to activists and stuff, say, hey, look at this. And people were paying attention to that. And we didn't even know who we were running against, you know, back in 08, right? So now here, everyone knows who you're running against. He's universally vilified by the Democratic Party, uh, more than George W. Bush ever was. And this is, uh, man, this is beating Trump, number one. Um, I care about who the candidate is, uh, number two, but I'm still going to want to beat Trump first, I think, for most people. You agree with that? I agree with that. I mean, I think particularly, you know, what's clear is, you know, you even see some of the impeachment polling in the battleground states shows a very different picture than nationally. Some of the head-to-heads have tightened up. Trump's going to register a lot of folks in those battleground states. So my guess is the concern level when we get into January is going to be a lot higher than it is even now, that we may lose this. So, yeah, my sense is that that's going to definitely be a prison people are looking at these candidates through. I'm curious, what's your... um, we were, what, 242 or so, 242,000 in, in 08, which is a record. Do you think the turnout, you know, next February in Iowa could surpass that? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be, I, I have no idea, but I think I could see it 300-ish. I don't know. I mean, if you would have asked me back in 07, 08, though, and, you know, did, did you guys think it could get to 252? No. I, no, 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 no. <laughs> right. We thought getting past 200 was going to be really hard, right? So Yeah, right? Like nobody, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think it could be big. But, you know, one th- can I say one last thing about the winning part um, that I think is important for people to understand? I think Iowa activists are, you know, they're very, they're sophisticated, they're humble. You know, they take their role very seriously. There's an earnestness. But they're sophisticated in it, too. They want to see a candidate that can not only have a, you know, deliver a great message, be an authentic person and have a message, feel authentic to that person, you know, speak to the party, speak to the country, but also build something along the way. Like what people don't realize is organization in and of itself is a message. It's how you're going to, you know, I always tell people how you build a campaign is a direct reflection of how you're going to govern and possibly the only reflection of, you know, I think Obama would say this or Axelrod or somebody would say it like, you know, the only, the true test of being president is running for president. So your campaign and your organization and the people you bring behind and how you include people and how you empower people, how you respect people, how you respect voters is a direct reflection of how you're going to govern. And Iowans are watching that, right? Whether consciously or subconsciously, they're watching that. How are they treated? What does the campaign look like? Am I included? Do they care what I have to say? Is he listening to me? Is he taking my questions? Is the campaign? So, you know, it's not just what you're going to say and how the message is, but it's everything below that. Um, you know, one last thing I would say, you know, I, I made this comment. I, you know, I don't, I'm not following, but I was in Iowa recently with David Axelrod doing, you know, his, his, his podcast and, um, this was over state fair time. We went over to the Warren office and interview Emily Parcell, who uh, was with us in um, 08. And, uh, Secret weapon for Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, yeah, she now works for Elizabeth Warren. So we went over there. And I made a comment. I said, I was looking at their signs. And I said, uh, boy, that's an interesting color. You know, just making small talk. But where did, what color is that? 
Um, and she said, oh, someone went and color matched that with the Statue of Liberty. And I thought, huh, that's awesome in the sense that here is a campaign that is doing all the little things that is going to add up to a big thing. And that is a great campaign. Yeah. I mean, campaigns, whether it's the primary or the general, you know, because the so many voters, you kind of know what they're going to do, right? I mean, it's, it's all on the margin. So all that marginal stuff matters. I'm curious, you know, Paul, when you think about this, and this is a big field. You mentioned there's five or six, you know, people you might uh, put in in a, in a different tier than the rest. But how many people do you really think can come out of Iowa with a credible chance to be the Democratic nominee? I think more than probably have come out in the past. Um, I don't know, four, five. You know, it's it, it's going to depend on one. It's going to depend on how close Iowa was. You know, there'll be there'll be a winner. There's no question, and that will vault them. But like, you know, I mean, you remember Obama? Obama wins and then actually drops in New Hampshire. Uh, but you know, don't remind me, man. I know. Yeah. You know, so uh, I think it's going to be more than in the past. Uh, I think, I think this thing goes the distance because I think activists across the country are going to want their say, and there's going to be an adjustment, and they're waiting to see what happens, and it's going to get to their state. And I think people are going to want their say. I really do. I think Democrats are just so anxious for this election and so anxious to be a part of it that they're not going to let one person walk away with this. Well, if that's true, it probably does make, you know, people's view of electability even more important because it means we're not going to have somebody on the stage against Trump until May or June, if not later in the nightmare scenario. Yeah, which in a, I'm fine with, except, you know, and you, as you and I have discussed organizationally, I'm, you know, I think that's the big challenge. But, you know, I, re, I recall and you know, I was just a, new in politics at the time, but 96 when Bob Dole locked it up, I mean, he disappeared disappeared in February. You didn't hear from him until the Republican convention. So I'm for this thing going 50 states. I'm for, I think that helps in a way. I think, you know, I think there's a case to be made. Obama would not have won an Indiana or North Carolina if we didn't first uh, fight a primary there because you, you know, people got their sea legs under him in those states Uh, about Obama. They'd developed a taste for the organizing culture and the culture around the campaign. I, I think that's good for the party. I think it's good for our chances the longer this thing goes. I might be in a minority on that. Right. I think they're definitely organizational benefit. It's just then you got Trump kind of waiting out there for yeah. you. So you got to make that, that pivot and turn elegantly. So, Paul, one of my favorite photos from the entire Obama enterprise was the photo of him with you and your senior staff in Iowa the night of the caucuses. You know, after he had been declared the winner, you guys really built the most amazing organization, I think, in the history of politics. Uh, before he flies off to New Hampshire, as you just um, unfortunately pointed out, then we got our ass kicked. But um, <laughs> talk about what that, because, you know, the truth is, I think for Barack Obama, I mean, he's spoken to this, but, you know, I think by the end of that, uh, he just didn't want to let you guys down. You know, you had done such an amazing job building that organization these heroic young organizers, you know, and, and he'd, you know, look at them and say, 
you know, I was a pretty good community organizer back in the day, but these kids far surpassed anything I could do. Just talk about what that night meant. I mean, because I think he says it's his favorite night in politics, because even if we'd gone on to not be the nominee or lose the presidency, we placed a bet on young organizers and turning out young people and Republicans. And it was kind of magical in a way. I almost feel like too precious when I talk about it. But talk about that moment, you know, when you when you guys got to spend that precious time with him. Well, I, you know, I, I you know, I, you look back on it and people always say, well, um, it wasn't that one moment. It was like everything in between. You know what I mean? Like you look back on it and, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of, you know, imagine you're going through something that you're expending blood, sweat, and tears on and joy. Um, you know, you develop a family-like culture inside a, an operation like that, you know, whether it be a sports team or a, a political campaign. Um, and this one had a sense of history, you know. I mean, you know, I don't think we sat around and talked about it, uh, but there was a sense of hitch- history. You know, here was a African-American guy that was, you know, could be president. And when we won, you know, there was a humility about it that, you know, I think you still carry this day, the a humility that you were a witness to it all. Uh, you were, and, a, you know, kind of a fortunate feeling that you were a witness and a participant in history. And that's just a wonderful feeling that I think, whether you were a volunteer there, um, whether you were the campaign manager, you know, we'll all carry with us the rest of our lives. And I think he will too. Like, I, you know, I think he he sees that as a special night. I mean, he's said that as much publicly um, because it was kind of a vindication of, you know, America can do this. We can change. We can make history together. And this was kind of the first moment when I think everybody realized that was possible. That's special. I mean, you carry it with you the rest of your life. Yeah. No, it was... It was a real um, blessing to be part of. Yeah, and I say this too, like I, you know, this. I think, listen, I am. I'm a big believer in organizations and campaigns. I never really knew what the saying meant: "A fish rots from the head." <laughs> but campaigns and organizations take on a culture of the candidate and and the leadership around that candidate, and you know, starting with you. And that I always tell people there was a respect and an appreciation for the activists, the the organizers, the people that were spending 60, 80-hour weeks on this. Um, a, a, just a fundamental respect. It wasn't a throwaway thing. And that, that started from him. Uh, obviously, you dictated that. Uh, it was a big deal. I remember you would come into Iowa, and instead of coming into the headquarters, you'd be running around the state meeting with activists and and you know, being probably our uh, second best surrogate after Michelle. And, you know, what that said to the regular activist was a big deal. What that said to a young kid spending 80 hours a week was a big deal. That, you know, we were all in this together. We were all going to affect change together. And that's a very culturally, I think, important thing to get across. So you were... Well, I just did what Paul Tews asked me to do. Um, <laughs> that is absolutely. We to, I, is this being taped? I want to make sure yeah, that's you've recorded. You've got this now on the record, okay? <laughs> yes, for posterity. So, Paul, before I let you go, um, those are really uh, great memories. And, you know, I don't I don't know if, if for the winner of the caucuses this time it'll be as special as that. But, you know, this is ultimately about, you know, uh, 
the Democratic nomination. And so you know the country exceedingly well. I, I just would love your thoughts on the general election, you know, where you think we stand today, where you have some optimism, where you've got some concern, you know, as you look out at, at what we're likely to face, uh, you know, this time 12 months from now. I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic provided we run a campaign that is the antithesis of Trump. You know, I want I want an inclusive campaign. I want a Democratic Party that is, um, I, yeah, I'm a Michelle Obama, uh, when they go low, we go high person, absolutely, through and through. I think that's the only way to win. Uh, it's the right way to win, and 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 it's the only and, and it's what this country needs desperately, desperately. And I think most Americans are there. You know, they want to be appealed to on their better angels. And Obama was just, you know, uh, the president was masterful at that when he was running, just masterful. You know, he didn't play the demon game. The campaign didn't play the demon game. Uh, and I hope we don't. I hope we run a campaign that lifts this country up. As Obama would put it, you know, brick by brick, block by block, because that's what can and will beat him. Um, you know, if it's sludge and name calling and ickiness, uh, it's not good for the country. It's not good for our party. It's not good for our chances. So I think we're. I think that'll. I think I'm anxious to see that come out of this. I think I'm anxious to see that in this. JJ, can you articulate? A strong message without having to demonize Trump every other sentence. No, absolutely, you have to run against him and you have to contrast with him. But can you show the country kind of a new path in politics, a politics of respect, a politics of inclusiveness? I think that's important. Let me just dig in one layer deeper, just because you mm -hmm. both come from these states and you've worked in them for a very long time. So when we look at, I'll add Minnesota that mix. So Minnesota, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. So you mentioned broadly you're optimistic. Talk a little bit about why you're optimistic that we can win enough of those back and what keeps you up at night. Um, how, how could Trump pull out another narrow victory up there? I think but, but when you go back to that message, there's also one added thing in that message, and that goes back to this idea that of inclusivity and also of respect. I think Hillary, again, I don't want to be critical, but I think camp Democratic campaigns sometimes don't show up. So if you go to rural Iowa and or you go to rural Minnesota and you don't even show up, we've been running campaigns in the Democratic Party where we've just written off geographically three-quarters of the country. That's not respect. It's not respect for the country. It's not respect for the people that live there. And even, if, you know, you're not going to go into rural counties where I'm from in Minnesota and win as a Democrat, you know, 55%, you know. But when you see the county that I grew up in, Cotton County, Minnesota, you know, Obama was getting 41s and 42s or 43s. And Senator Clinton or Secretary Clinton at the time was getting, you know, 22s, 24s. You can't make that up. And not only that, so so to me, part of the message is the medium, too. You have to show up. You have to show respect to people all over this country, whether you agree with them or not. And that starts by showing up. That starts by showing up in their communities and talking with them and engaging them and asking for their opinions and telling them their opinions matter. And we just, we didn't do that in 16, not at all. And so I think this year, 
I think we've learned that lesson. I think people I've talked to know that, that, you know, we have to have a campaign next year that kind of is everywhere, that's talking to everybody, that's engaging everybody, and a message that fits that. So that's how, you know, I'm optimistic. I, you know, Trump's deep in some of these places, but you can't be afraid to not show up because then you're, then he's going to get deeper. I think that's particularly important because I, I, I do fear that he's going to register a lot of folks and kind of max out his turnout. So yeah. we, you know, there's this dangerous debate in our party is it base versus swing. And the truth is, if he's raising the sea level of, of his numbers, we have to do both, I think. Um, and that is going to require, to your point, yeah. getting back to, you know, 38 or 40 in, in your home county in Minnesota. Well, Paul Tews, thank you. Uh, you're such a, a legendary organizer and leader. And uh uh, thanks for spending some time and nobody knows Iowa better and I think nobody knows the import of this dinner on Friday better so um, thanks for being our guide yeah thank you David uh, I owe a lot to you and to uh, uh, the Obama campaign we put together it was a lot of fun and thank you for having me on your show well thank you to Paul Tews I hope you all uh, learned a lot about Iowa and, and the big dinner this weekend and uh, what the race is going to look like out there for the next few months Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Okay, we've got a second guest who's going to take you deep in Iowa. I'm joined by Mitch Stewart, who led the effort along with Paul Tews in 2008 for Barack Obama in Iowa. He was our caucus director. Mitch uh, knows Iowa like the back of his hand, uh, has also worked in, in caucuses and primaries uh, throughout the country. He was our state director in Virginia in 2008 when we were the first candidate to win that state since uh, the 1960s. So uh, just uh, like Paul, a legendary organizer. And I'm going to ask him a few questions about the caucuses just to deepen your understanding, building on what you learned from Paul about what the Iowa caucuses are and what they're not. And as someone who cares deeply about this nomination race, uh, what you should be paying attention to, you know, in the weeks ahead. And, you know, some of the challenges and opportunities these candidates and campaigns are facing as they try and build a winning effort in the important state of Iowa. 
Mitch Stewart, my old friend, legendary organizer, South Dakotan, has uh, won and <laughs> lost more elections than he cares to count. Um, thanks for joining us, Mitch. Yeah, thank you, David. Happy to be on. So, you know, we've got debates coming up and everybody's analyzing the tweet of the day, but this ultimately, as it always does, um, gets real in Iowa, and no one knows the Iowa caucuses better than you. I wanted to ask, you know, maybe you could share with our listeners, what makes the Iowa caucus different than a primary or a general election? Yeah, it is a totally unique electoral experience. Um, and so in a place like Iowa, I think, David, in 2007 and eight, when, when we were doing uh, the caucuses for President Obama, I think there was like 1,860, uh, right around there, precincts in Iowa. And so these these caucuses have a have a start date. You know, they start at like doors open at 6 p.m. on a very cold. It's usually an early January uh, Monday night. Um, and you have to then organize basically 1,860 unique elections because um, you have a certain time where people can show up. If they're not there on time, the doors close and they can't participate. So you have to make sure all your all your supporters get there. And so you have to set up basically 1,860 unique organizations to support your candidate on a very cold, um, like I said, usually January night. Um, and if your people aren't there, then you lose. You know, you lose, you lose the delegates from that precinct. And so it's really like an organizational battle on uh, uh, that's that's totally unique. And because of the protracted uh, primary that we had in 2008, I was ex- experiencing caucuses all over the country and just nothing compares to Iowa. The level of sophistication, the detail, um, the depth uh, that you have to have uh, in order to make sure that you have representation and supporters there in those 1,860 you know, or roughly 1,860 precinct locations um, on, on that Monday night. So, Mitch, you've led the organization to win an Iowa caucus in a super competitive environment in 08. What are these campaigns doing organizationally right now? What are their big tasks that they're trying to get done? Yeah, so the, the if you want to imagine a pyramid or almost a, a ladder, um, right now these uh, campaigns are trying to just build a list of people who have expressed some interest uh, in your campaign. And what's unique about Iowa caucus goers is they'll often show interest in seven or eight uh, candidates where, you know, in a general election, if someone signs up on your email list, that's a pretty good indication that they're going to be a supporter of yours. That's not true in Iowa caucuses uh, because these, these caucus scores really take their role seriously. And so they want to learn a lot about these candidates. Um, so, you know, the first, the base of what you're trying to do is build people who have some interest in your candidacy uh, or your, your candidate. The second layer then, or the second rung on that ladder, are folks who have expressed some willingness to support you on caucus night. Like, yes, I'll go to the caucus and I, and I will support, uh, you know, your candidate. So that's like the second layer. Once they've done that, you try to keep walking them up this ladder of engagement almost so that now that they're a supporter of yours, they've made a commitment to show up and caucus for you. The next ask is to try to get them to volunteer. You know, would you like to go and knock on doors with us? Would you like to make phone calls, et cetera? Once you have people who have done that, the next step up then is, will you be a volunteer leader for us at your caucus site on caucus night? Um, and then we call those folks precinct captains. Uh, but basically, uh, 
that is uh, the ultimate goal of what these campaigns are doing right now is trying to cultivate, train, identify uh, these precinct captains. Because from a staffing perspective, you can't be in all those caucus locations on caucus night. You need to have someone who lives in that neighborhood, uh, who is trained, knows how a caucus works, and will effectively manage your effort uh, within the caucus, you know, on that Monday night. And I, I tell you, David, we, um, we in Iowa in 2007, we very rarely allowed folks to do all staff emails. Um, just <laughs> uh, We did it a couple times, and, it, <laughs> uh, you know, people took a lot of editorial liberty and were like, okay, we have to shut that down. The one exception to that, though, was when we were really heavily recruiting precinct captains, um, whoever uh, got a precinct captain to sign on and say, yes, I'll be a precinct captain, uh, they could send an email to the entire staff and then everybody would congratulate that person. I mean, it was, it was a total focus of the field team in 2008, 2007 and 2008 to recruit these people because they are absolutely critical if you're going to have a successful caucus effort. Now, and you need those precinct captains in place, though. I mean, some might come late closer to caucus, but earlier, because their job isn't just on caucus night, right? They're responsible for helping identify supporters and other volunteers in their precinct. So is that what's happening now? These campaigns are trying to land precinct captains right now in the summer? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you're exactly right. Um, what you want these precinct captains to do is feel real ownership of their neighborhood. And so not only are they equipped with a list of people who have committed to support your candidate, they also should have a list of people who are undecided. You know, people who uh, are leaning towards your candidate but have not yet uh, made that commitment. Or maybe even more importantly, um, that your candidate is their second choice. So if their first preference isn't viable, they know exactly who to go and engage to, hey, come join us now because your person isn't viable. We're your second choice. Um, you know, I've talked to you three times. Uh, you know, my kid mows your lawn. Uh, come and caucus with us. And that, that sort of horse trading really happens on caucus night. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. And so what's interesting is the way the campaign's covered is if you had a clever line in a speech, right, or a good interview, that's considered, you know, a good day. But probably what's more important right now are these candidates nailing down the number of precinct captains they need every day, you know, to reach their total, right? Two questions. How many organizers did we have on the ground by the end of 08? And then, you know, given the size of this field, a, you know, is there enough staff, you know, to supply all the campaign's needs? And what will, like, you know, people come in the top three here? Like, how many people they need to have on the ground from a staff standpoint to put this together? So I think, David, at the end of our caucus effort, um, I think we had about 160 field organizers. And so... So more than one per county. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean... Um, and we had well over 30 offices. In fact, I think we might have been north of 40 offices. And so in some places, we had offices where there's in a town of 3,000 people. You know, the first time a presidential has, in the history of that of that town, has ever had a, a, a campaign office for uh, the caucus. You know, we did that in a number of places. Um, and so, yeah, I think we were probably at 160. Um, and, you know, I suspect that uh, a lot of these campaigns will end up with field staff, the top tier ones. Um, we'll end up with a, a field staff of, of roughly 100, would be my guess. And, you know, 100 will give you a, a fighting shot. Um, that will give you the geographic coverage you need and the depth um, in some of these bigger cities uh, to build the relationship so that you can organize a, a strong precinct effort. So I'm kind of a dinosaur, Mitch. You're still current enough. I'm curious, 
Like, what do you think some of the innovations will be on the ground, uh, data or technologies this time compared to 16 or certainly when we won back in 08? Yeah, it, I think it's social, to be honest with you. I think it's um, uh, training and providing organizers um, the tools to uh, build their own social footprint, whether that's through Facebook, through Twitter, through Instagram, um, through you know any of the different uh, channels there so that they can engage supporters, um, not just by knocking on their door or making phone calls, which is becoming harder and harder, um, but engaging voters where they where they have their political discourse, which is often online. And so what I'm waiting for is a campaign that actually gives our field organizers uh, an ad budget and is able to geo-target those ads by that precinct so that they can try to you know, get clicks. And then once you get a click, that's, that is like the new way for people to show some interest in, in your campaign. And then you slowly walk them up the ladder of engagement that I explained earlier. But to me, that's the big, big innovation or change since 2008 or 2012. It's how important being uh, fluent um, with social is uh, for, for a campaign and a candidate. So that's fascinating. So that would be a decentralized ad budget down to the 21, 22-year-old organizer on the ground in like Kasuth County, Iowa. And have you seen that happening in other, you know, campaigns around the country? Not, not that I've heard of, but I think um, I wouldn't be surprised if that innovation didn't happen this cycle. Well, I'm sure folks... Now, there, has to be, you know, there has to be some pretty strict uh, editorial guidelines, just like I said. Like, we were nervous uh, sending all, all staff emails in 2007, you know, so there has to be, there has to be some editorial control. Um, but yeah, I think that, that will be the next step is a decentralized... Uh, really giving license to these organizers who really are the experts of their community, or they should be. Like that's what you're trying to build. You know, we had um, we had organizers who moved in from the East Coast, lived in Algona, Iowa, and by the end of the caucuses, people wanted them to stay and run for office there. <laughs> like that's when you kind of know that you've built uh, a good operation. Is that these organizers are seen as part of the community, not as political operatives coming in for for eight months. Um, and so I think the next step here is is to provide these organizers a tool so that they can engage people online um, and specifically through social. It's a brilliant idea. Do you have a sense of what it's going to take to come out of Iowa, not just being alive, but with a chance to be the Democratic nominee? Yeah, for me, the, the threshold is 15 percent. Um, and as you know, David, 15 percent is the viability threshold in these caucus locations. And so what that means um, for the folks listening in is, if there are 100 people in this caucus location, 15 have to uh, be for your candidate in order for you to be eligible to get one delegate. So that 15% threshold is really important. And for me, I think a candidate has to get over that 15% threshold to move forward. And so I think the number of three or four is probably right, David. Like, I don't think, given how many people are running, that there's going to be a lot of candidates that are going to get over 15%. Um, and so that would be my goal as a, as if I'm the campaign manager in Iowa, 15% is like the first hurdle we have to, to get over to make sure that we can make it to New Hampshire. And I think if you don't get over 15%, your campaign is going to be probably critically wounded, you know, maybe with the exception of like a Biden who has, um, uh, a national profile, but for a lot of these others, like if they don't get over 15% in Iowa, I think their campaign's over. Now, what's interesting about that is to a Biden, maybe a Sanders 
you know, 15%, you know, is probably, they're looking more like 28 or 30 or 32. You mentioned Klobuchar, Booker, 15 of them is probably a huge victory. So talk about that a little bit. There's also the tiering, right, which is um, somebody could come in, you know, there's going to be a bunch of people probably battling to come in third or fourth, right, a huge group of people. Um, and and how that race is different than if you're a front runner like a Biden. Yeah, well, and, and David, you know this well, but the, the game in Iowa is to exceed expectations. And so <laughs> everybody is going to be downplaying their chances to win Iowa. I remember walking around and they say, well, what are your goals here in Iowa? And I said, well, our goal here is to do really well. <laughs> They're like, well, we'll define that. I said, well, we want to exceed expectations. Well, how do you exceed expectations? Well, by doing really well. And so you would just talk in circles like that, because if you ever said, hey, we want to get first, and let's say that you run a really good campaign and you get a close second, um, if you had to find the narrative a little bit different on the front end, that second would be seen as a huge victory. Michael Dukakis is a good example of that. You know, he didn't win, but he kind of surged out of nowhere to get close and that propelled him to the nomination. And so that's what you're trying to capture is um, a late surge, exceed expectations, and then you ride that wave to, to New Hampshire and the other early states. All right, my friend. Thank you for sharing some time and wisdom with us and uh, talk to you down the road. That sounds good, David. Thank you. Well, of course, I love hearing from my uh, old two colleagues, Paul Tews and Mitch Stewart, but, uh, you know, interesting conversations. I think they both believe turnout is going to go north of what we saw it in 2008. So Paul even suggested go as high as 300,000. And that's important because that changes the math of how many people you need to win and the types of people. If if it does go north of 300,000, you're going to have a lot of people participating there who, you know, are not traditional Democrats, who might be Republicans, might never uh, voted before. So that's super important. Turnout may ultimately help determine, you know, who's going to win here. And, you know, candidates who are advantaged by bigger turnout, by getting non-traditional folks out – you know, we'll definitely be trying to drive turnout in that direction. It was great to hear about, you know, the dinner that's happening this weekend in Iowa, the old JJ dinner, and, you know, why that matters and that this really is the kickoff of the real campaign. And I think both Mitch and and Paul talked a lot about building organization and, and knowing that, particularly in a caucus where the organizational complexity is much higher than it is in a primary or even a general election. So you're trying to get people to show up at an appointed time on one day, in the bitter cold at night, you need a great organization. And so the point they're making, I think, is, you know, even candidates who are doing a good job out there, or maybe they give a great speech, you know, this weekend, if you don't have that organization to capitalize on that momentum, you're not going to materialize this moment into actual support. And, you know, I think just really interesting to hear what it takes to build a winning campaign in a state like Iowa, because I think, the kind of campaign these folks build in Iowa, you know, will be similar to the kind of campaigns they build through the rest of the primary process and if they're a nominee. So I think for all of us who are interested in in making sure we nominate someone who can beat Trump, obviously that person has to be skilled at speech making and they have to have, you know, really good policy ideas. And, I, you know, I still think it's important that they be someone who could be a successful president. I know that may seem novel these days. But, you know, can they build the kind of campaign operation you need to register voters to get, hopefully, historic turnout, to build the kind of neighborhood volunteers that can go talk to swing voters? So I think, you know, we need to pay really close attention 
to what happens in Iowa, not just in terms of that night. Oh, who won? Who came in second? Who came in third? Who's got to drop out? You know, that's going to happen regardless. But who put together the type of organization and operation that suggests they may be able to put together a winning coalition? So, you know, Mitch and Paul are the two best I've ever worked at, you know, in terms of really thinking through that. And hopefully you, you know, benefited from their expertise. And um, I, I do, uh, again, would encourage you all to to spend a little bit of time consuming what happens this weekend in the aftermath of the big Iowa dinner, you know, both organizationally and, and from a candidate performance standpoint. I, I think um, it'll be fascinating to see if somebody emerges from this pack as the clear winner coming out of the weekend. That will greatly advantage them in the race in the short term. You know, the question is, can they fully take advantage of that? So um, anyway, I hope you loved uh, learning more about Iowa. Um, I'm not sure Iowa will be a battleground state in the fall. I hope it is. Barack Obama won it twice. Maybe a little bit of a stretch. But uh, but if it is, we'll, we'll dive deeper in Iowa uh, in a general election. But we'll do similar episodes as we get into New Hampshire and Nevada, South Carolina, so you can get a better sense of, of those states, you know, what the best way is to pay attention and follow those races in the weeks and, and months ahead. <laughs>